Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Ascendo Reliability Webinar Series. My name's Chris Jackson. If you haven't met me, uh, you can check out who I am on AscendoReliability.com. Uh, so today's webinar is entitled Reliability Analysis. Now what? And the reason why we called it this, the reason why this webinar has this title is because we received a ton of feedback um, or perhaps a ton of frustration from a bunch of listeners and viewers in regard to using reliability analysis to uh, go and inform a decision, uh, how managers were looking for something more than what we thought we were able to provide them. So today we're going to look at um, how we can use at least one example of reliability data analysis to inform a real life business decision. So full disclosure, we're going to nerd it up just a little bit today. The reason why is because although there's a ton of commercial software applications out there which purport to do reliability stuff, and they do, they really are somewhat limited in terms of taking the outputs of that data analysis and turning it into meaningful metrics. How much money will we save? How much will things cost? What will my warranty uh, period need to be for us to have a better than average chance of making money on this particular product line, for example? So we have to do something a little bit above and beyond what commercial software can typically do for you. And the reason why commercial software can't easily do some of this stuff is because everyone's business situation is different. Everyone has a different relationship between value, how your organisation works, and the reliability or availability or maintainability or whatever that whatever matters of the thing that your system creates. So we will have a little bit of nerding it up where we go a little bit beyond uh, what commercial software can do. But my promise to you is that when we do nerd it up, it's going to be a couple of basic little um, scenarios, basic little examples, which you can type easily yourself into whatever software sy uh, system you might have on hand. Uh, should you have access to some of these uh, mathematically inclined software packages or if you know someone who can. So even though we are going to nerd it up just a little bit, we what we're going to do is so simple that with a little bit of understanding and awareness, you should be able to go and do this yourself. So before we get into uh, reliability analysis, now what? We're going to wind back and look at what most reliability data analysis activities actually look like. And we typically start this thing, this thing called probability plotting. So we're going to do a little bit of revision or, or cover a little bit of content from another webinar we've done on probability plotting, where we're going to greater detail about how this works. But for today's conversation, we need to understand what probability plotting is all about, just to be able to give context to the problem we're trying to solve. So as we all know, failure is a random process because there's tons of uncertainties in the way our equipment operates, the material imperfections, manufacturing variation, and of course, how our users use and abuse our systems. So failure is a random process, which means if this arrow at the bottom of our screen represents times of failure, then these blue dots could represent the time to failure for a, uh, a seemingly identical system like an engine. This, this could be the time to failure for a V8 engine. Um, it just so happens there's 20 different V8 engines used in different applications and lo and behold, they all experience different times to failure because failure 
is a random process. So let's add a ton more, um, a ton more data points just to flesh out the information we have in our example. Now we have what could be field data for an entire fleet of engines, for example, or wireless modem routers or coalface shearers or whatever it is that your organization is interested in. Now you can see straight away that these data points tend to cluster around this sort of region here. Uh, so we can see that straight away. We can see this, this sort of clustering of these data points, which means that they are more like, uh, our, our system is more likely to fail once its use has reached this particular region of time. All right. So what's next? Well, we might be able to, we might want to have a bit more of a, a bit uh, of a better look at the density of failure. So we want to understand how likely it is our uh, our engine is going to fail or our wireless modem wireless modem router is going to fail within this region of seemingly high failure density. And a histogram is a good way of getting a really a really quick first look at the regions of high density. So we can see that this histogram clearly shows to us that failure tends to occur around a certain central location for this particular system. But this histogram is not particularly smooth. It's a bit jagged. It looks like a witch's smile. So this of itself is not particularly useful. Now, if we were trying to work out if this data was described by a normal distribution whose PDF, shadow, whose PDF shadow you can see on the screen right now, or a Weibull distribution whose PDF shadow you can also see on the screen right now, it is difficult to see which one is a better fit just by comparing these close to bell curves shape, so close to bell curve shapes to our histogram, these different columns with different heights. So when it comes to data analysis or reliability data, data analysis, what we typically do is uh, approach it in a different way. We label our data points from the smallest to the largest. So data point number one represents the time to failure for our, our engine that failed first. Data point 100 represents the time to failure for our engine that failed last. We have 100 data points in our field data or our test or whatever, whatever data source we got this information from. And a much better way to visualize the random nature of these data points when compared at least to a histogram is to create this curve here where our y-axis is the cumulative distribution function which represents essentially the percentage of things you would, you would expect to fail before a particular point in time. So you can see straight away that our, uh, our difficult to interpret clustering of data points is now creating a much smoother curve. So we often uh, try to try and represent data in the CDF space because it gives us a sm much smoother line where we can more easily identify trends, identify uh, lines of best fit, for example. So here are the corresponding CDF shapes for our normal and viable distribution. And you'd be forgiven if you can't easily see a distinction between the two of them because they're very, very close to each other. And they both appear to be good fits to this uh, CDF curve that we've generated based on our data. Okay, so this is, this is often the first rudimentary step of uh, reliability data analysis. We create this CDF curve. In the CDF curve, which is not as smooth, we can often fit a line of best fit to it. This, uh, 
This is something we did a lot in our very uh, early statistical uh, lessons within schools and universities and so forth. Okay, but there's something else we can do too to really help us. What we can do is instead of plotting these, uh, uh, these data points on a CDF set, a set of CDF axes, we can create this weird set of axes, which has this really weird scale on the Y and horizontal, vertical and horizontal axes. And the reason we want to do this is because this particular set of axes is generated based on a particular probability distribution. So you can see on the vertical axis over here, we have this really weird scale. It's still the CDF, which represents the, the uh, probabil probability that our thing has failed or the percentage of things we expect to fail at a particular point in time. But it's not uniform. You can see it's really dense around the 50% mark and it really starts to spread out the closer to zero or the closer 100% we get. And obviously it goes from zero to 100%. The scale is somewhat infinite. On the horizontal axis, our time to failure is now in the logarithmic scale. And the reason we do this, the reason, the reason we create this weird set of axes is because if our data follows a straight line, it suggests that the data or the underlying random process is described by the Weibull distribution because this set of axes was generated using statistical magic and witchcraft uh, uh, emanating from the Weibull distribution. So this is what probability plotting is essentially all about. We create these papers which, or these axes which have these weird scales that some uh, boffin, some professor has, has worked out previously um, based on a particular probability distribution so that if our data, when we plot it, creates a straight line, we can conclude with reasonable confidence that the Weibull distribution, the normal distribution or whatever distribution that paper or axis is based on is a good or a candidate um, model for our random process. So to be clear, we should conclude that the Weibull distribution is a candidate model. We shouldn't say with absolute certainty it is the correct or true model because there's still some variation uh, in our data points for obvious reasons, values a random process. So we have a promising lead here that by plotting this, this data on this set of Weibull axes, uh, so on this Weibull probability plotting paper, and we see the straight line, that the Weibull distribution is a really useful one to examine further. Now, if this is something that interests you or you need to learn more about it, please check out our probability plotting webinar, which is the recording is on ascendoreliability.com, where we go into this in greater detail. We don't have a ton of time to go through it today because we're going to look at how we use probability plotting to uh, make our life better. But this is an example of whiteboard distribution plotting paper with these weird set of axes, and it is almost the uh, preeminence way we do data analysis. So just a very quick question. Um, has, uh, has, I just wanna see the extent to which our audience has or has not conducted probability plotting either either by, by hand or on a computer in their uh, line of work when it comes to reliability data analysis. So we got one, so one saying we've done uh, both by hand and using software, thank you Mark. Both again from Paul. So a couple of, feed, uh, couple of bits of feedback where uh, we've got software as well. Nice. Some, some good answers there. 
user work several times for, for the maintenance environment, which is also a really good place to, uh, a really good area to understand uh, random stuff, including maintenance durations, things like that. <laughs> Mark, roger that. And we have some people who say we don't do a ton of it. Okay, all right, so that's, thank you for that feedback. At least we, we have a mixture of uh, experiences out there when it comes to probability plotting. Now, probability plotting is also really useful because uh, it helps us human beings actually see what's going on. And the best way to understand probability plotting is to actually do it by hand. If you haven't done it by hand, I really suggest you try and do it because it really reinforces the underlying principles of probability plotting. But we often just use software when it comes to, oh, what just happened? Oh, the uh, presentation just uh, canceled itself. Can I confirm, can I get someone to just confirm they can now see the, uh, the screen with the Wible distribution plotting paper on it? Fantastic, sorry for that. IT, it's a wonderful thing. All right, so. We often just simply use software because it can be tedious to do um, probability plotting by hand. Notwithstanding it's a really good learning tool, we don't really want to do it all the time. So we often get software to automatic, automatically create a beautiful set of axes, which has our Weibull, um, our Weibull distribute, uh, sorry, a Weibull probability plotting paper on it. We get that software to, uh, uh, to put, all, put our data points on it and give us our line of best fit. And we can, can do it really quickly, which is obviously good because we're under a lot of time pressure as reliability engineers or engineers more broadly. Okay, so don't forget that in this uh, plotting paper, our vertical axis is a probability of failure or the expected fraction of things we, uh, we have, uh, sorry, the expected fraction of things we expect, uh, we, we uh, should see, sorry, the expected, expected fraction of our fleet that has failed by a given point in time. So this is what people often look at when we say reliability data analysis, this probability plot. Put data on a, on, a, on a plot, draw a line through it, and then work out some reliability characteristics from this line of best fit. But the problem for most reliability engineers, or at least some I should say, is that when we do this without doing anything else, we are missing something huge, which is the decision we are trying to inform by doing the data analysis, because that is everything. So why are we doing this? Is it to help us work out what my warranty period should be? Is it to work out how many warranty actions I will have? Is it to work out my mission reliability? Which decision is uh, your reliability data analysis going to inform? And there are clearly a ton more than these three things. So what we're gonna look at today is a really simple warranty actions decision. How many warranty actions will I have for a given warranty period? This is really important to know for obvious reasons and it can help you work out if your warranty period is, is right. But hopefully you can see how this decision can be easily changed to suit your organization and hopefully follow the bouncing ball um, as I'm as I move through today's webinar. So if my, if my boss, if my CEO, if my director, if the uh, lead engineer, whoever the person is who's in charge of our new product line, if they're trying to work out how long the warranty period should be based on whatever it is we've done, they might ask us, how many warranty actions will I have 
or which is actually there to inform a higher level question, which is, will I make a profit? So sometimes we as reliability engineers need to go beyond the specific question that's being asked because that makes us more useful. And if we're more useful in the eyes of our decision makers, we get listened to a lot more. So in this case, let's say our boss has said, how many warranty actions will I have for this new wireless modem router when manufacturing? But you dive a little bit deeper and you understand the boss wants to know if you're going to make a profit based on the current reliability uh, predictions. That is a more useful question to answer, more useful uh, question to inform. So if we go back to software and we go back to whatever it is we just looked at, the data, um, the data on the screen, you'll often have um, you often have a probability plot which your computer will spit back at you, which has things like the row value, the likelihood, and the p-value, which is which are all different expressions for what we call goodness of fit. So, question for you guys: uh, What what does goodness of fit mean to you when we're doing this sort of stuff? We use goodness of fit a lot in probability and statistics. What does it mean in your own words or in your own experience for the stuff you guys do? Give me a good chance to get some water into me. What does goodness of fit mean? Especially you guys have used software probability plotting, software-based probability plotting in the past. So how well the model represents the data, how well the model describes the data, means how accurate is my model in the first place? Some really good answers. Correlation between the model and the data. Fantastic. You, you're all really uh, nailing what goodness of fit is in terms of uh, the row values, the likelihood and the p-values. Now, to be clear, the goodness of fit is a really useful uh, way of understanding if we're using the right model. Obviously, understanding using the right model is, is a very useful characteristic of data analysis. But when it comes to answering a question, does it really help us? So, for example, here's this weird-looking orange line, this curvy line over on the left-hand side of our, oh, sorry, not the left-hand side, uh, superimposed on our straight, magnificent red line through our data points. Now, this curvy line will have a row value, a likelihood, a p-value, and a lot of these uh, statistics, for example, the p-value, it essentially allows you to work out the probability that one line is the right fit versus the other line. So there are a couple of problems with these goodness of fit uh, metrics. They're, they're really based on hypothesis testing. So the hypothesis number, uh, your hypothesis might be the red line is the appropriate model we should be using for our data, and we look with the p-value sort of represents the probability that another or a different model is correct but even then you have to uh, you can't just say uh, the model is not correct you need to almost specify another model to be able to compare the two so goodness of fit is often really useful uh, for comparing two lines of best fit the problem with the goodness of fit though is they'll give you numbers uh, the row value for example if it's closer to an absolute value of one that's a really good thing it means your line is a really good match to your data. But how do you use that number 
to go and answer your question or inform the decision because this is all about uncertainty as well. This is all about trying to give your boss the best answer but because we're dealing with failure and because we have, because when we investigate failure, there's always uncertainty on what we infer from our failure, we need to give these things called confidence bounds. How does your p-value help? Anyway, so let's hold that question and go back to our wireless modem router problem. And just so you know, that probability plot that we looked at represents uh, what we understand in terms of the reliability characteristics of a wireless modem router we are going to sell. Now, the recommended retail price of our wireless modem router is $125. Uh, we make $10 profit per unit. And if it does fail during the warranty period, what we do is we just ship a new um, wireless modem router to our customer, and that costs a total of $115. So we now are starting to incorporate the raw numbers, the costs and the outlays and the recommended retail prices to help use reliability to answer our boss's question, which is really how much profit will I make when I take into consideration warranty. So for example, if our warranty period is two years, we can look at our arrival uh, probability plot. We have our line of best get fit going through what could be test data or field data. And what we can easily do is uh, where our warranty period is indicated on the horizontal axis, we draw a line straight up to our line of best fit, go straight across and it says, hey, 8% of our units will fail in the warranty period. But you can see that this is based off the line of best fit means there's a lot of, there's actually quite a few local data points which aren't really close to that line. So even though this might be, might be the line of best fit, how, how confident are we that this is the best, uh, the right, right answer? Well, let's just assume that we're going to run with our line of best fit 8% estimate of warranty failure. So we reckon, uh, we, we uh, reckon in this case that based on our line of best fit, 8% of our things will fail after two years using our probability plot. Now, we know that warranty costs uh, $115 per action. So 8% times 115 is gives us a cost of $9.20, which means that we would expect to have to pay uh, $9.20 per unit when we sell these things. Now remember that we are making a unit profit of $10. So using our best guess, we are making a profit of 80 cents per wireless modem router using our best guess you are with the line of best fit, which would be an alarming statistic for our boss because 80 cents profit for a device that costs $125 is not a lot. And also, are we absolutely sure that that is the right figure? Because that line of best fit is simply the line of best fit. It is not the line, so to speak. So, for those of us who use software, you might go back and instead of uh, instead of looking at the line of best fit, we can see that there's a ton of variation at the lower level and say, you know what, let's get our software to put confidence bounds on our line of best fit. So we go back to our warranty period and we see that for this uh, confidence, confidence region, which represents a region within which we are 90% confident that the true line uh, runs through more correctly. The, the, the region where the software is 90% confident that the true line 
uh, runs through, we can see that the upper and lower bound on our uh, failure probability in our warranty period is 4.2 and 17% respectively. So based on this, we are saying that we're 90% certain that between 4.2 and 17% of our units will fail in the warranty period. So we go back to our math and say, okay, the expected warranty cost is 4.2 4 to 17% of $115, which is $4.83 to $19 per unit. Remember, we are making a per unit profit of $10. So this means that we'd expect a net profit of somewhere between minus $9.55 and plus $5.17. And we're 90% confident somewhere in that range. Again, is that useful information? It gives you, it is not necessarily wrong, but how does it help the decision maker? So this is where we are going to nerd it up a little bit. So just hold on to your, um, hold on to your uh, social circles and just bear with me for a little, little bit, because I'm going to show you what you can do using something like MATLAB. And this is not that challenging. This, this, is, uh, this is something you can really easily learn yourself with through MATLAB, sometimes even Excel can do this sort of stuff for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first take my test data, my wireless modem router, and I'm going to enter all these uh, times to failure observed from my test data, my field data, and store it in this matrix or vector we call X. So just typing in all these times to failure in this, uh, in this matrix X. I'm then going to type in this expression here and without going into too great a detail this is doing what we call Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation so just we'll cover off on what that means in a little, little bit but all we're going to do is use our test data or our field data that's where our x sits and we're going to ask it to create 100 samples of the parameters of our Weibull distributions which could describe what's going on so we'll just look at what that means uh, very very in the next few slides. So if this doesn't make a lot of sense, hopefully it will uh, make a little bit of sense later, uh, very soon. So when we run this function, what we get is a number of, a, a, a series of pairs of numbers. So each pair represents the two parameters which define our Weibull distribution. The one on the left represents the scale parameter, eta. The one on the right represents our shape parameter, beta. And because I put 100 in that, in that expression, we have a hundred rows, which means we have in, in effect, a hundred different Weibull distributions based on our data. So if we take one, we can plot that on our, on our probability plot and get this straight line here. Now, if we do that for the other hundred, we get this uh, entire set of uh, Weibull distributions. And because it's Weibull probability plotting paper, each one creates a straight line. So you can see that we are now characterizing the uncertainty because what we did with that first function was to create a bunch of Weibull distributions who are, whose likelihood to occur is based on how well they describe the information we see. So the next part of nerding it up is to go back and use those uh, parameters, those 100 parameters, to essentially create uh, a, a bunch of uh, sample points of our failure probability at two years. So when we do this, and here's the expression you can see on the screen right now, which uses the Weibull CDF function, we get these numbers here. And each one of these represents a sampled failure probability of two at two years. Now we'll look at what that means graphically right now. 
So what that what these are what this uh, little uh, expression did was at our warranty period of two years, work out the uh, implied failure probability for each one of our viable distributions. And you can see that we have a hundred samples of, of, not reliability, sorry, failure probability at two years. Why am I doing this? Because I can use these samples. These samples can be used to create, for example, a really simple histogram. Now this histogram contains all the information we need to help us really understand the failure probability at two years in a very basic way. So if I take that, that histogram and now plot it on our warranty period failure uh, probability, we get this smooth curve here. So this tells us what, uh, this, this correctly captures our understanding of the failure probability of our wireless modem router. This, this is how we summarise every bit of information we have to, uh, re regarding uh, the question that our boss is asking us. But we are not there yet because this is what uh, uh, failure probability. This is not inherently giving us enough information to help us answer the question. So let's just say that we want to convert this to warranty costs. Well, we're not to say, we're going to actually do that. And we simply know that, that warranty costs is equal to our failure probability times $115. This will give you how much you would expect to pay per unit. Because we have 100 samples, here are our expected warranty costs. So each row contains a sampled warranty cost. Now, what that means is that instead of having a warranty period failure on the horizontal axis, we can now replace it with warranty cost per unit. So this represents our understanding of how much money we expect to pay per unit to cover warranty costs. But again, we're not there yet because we know our boss is actually interested in profit. And profit is equal to $10 minus the warranty, expected warranty cost for our, uh, for our wireless modem router. So this gives us another set of 100 numbers, which gives us our uh, sampled profit. So we can go back to our histogram and plot these data points. And so it changes from a warranty cost per unit to profit per unit. Now we have all the information we can possibly squeeze out of our data analysis problem um, to, to, uh, to answer our boss's question. So instead of using this histogram, I actually did this, but, but created a, a sample size of 100,000. So a huge number of samples. And because your computer's doing it and not you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, make, it doesn't make it any more challenging for you, but by increasing the number of samples, we make this really smooth histogram, which eventually allows us to replace it with a PDF, which represents our understanding of the expected profit per unit. And using that histogram in the PDF, we can work out that, for example, um, there is a 40.73% chance of us losing money for this wireless modem router. The expected profit is uh, 32 cents. Now this correctly summarizes all the information you can possibly have to give to your boss. You cannot make it any easier or, or uh, sorry, you cannot make it, uh, process it process it any further because your boss was all about profit his decision was based on the profit so as as soon as we get our uh, our uh, our subjective understanding in terms of profit 
we can go no further in terms of doing the analysis. However, we can pull different statistics from the uh, from this uh, risk profile with respect to decision uh, to align with what your boss is most easily able to understand. Is it expected profit? Is it the probability of a loss? Whatever metric you need to communicate to your boss, this curve can give you. So before I move on, I can see there's a couple of questions uh, in regard to raised, uh, First question I can see is, uh, is today's webinar going to be available through recording? Absolutely, yes, it will be. Uh, all our webinars on ascendoreliability.com are available uh, for, for members to view at, view, sorry, in their own time afterwards. So yes, we'll be recording today's lesson. Uh, sorry, webinar, you'll be able to view it later on. But before I move on, I just like to open the open the floor, open the floor to questions for what we have done before I throw a couple of questions back at you guys. Any questions what we've done so far? <laughs> Thanks, Mark. And in regards to um, in regards to your comment, I know I had to nerd it up a little bit, but hopefully you can see all I had to do was type in two or three uh, uh, commands in MATLAB. I didn't have to create a very fancy uh, a fancy program to make this happen. So the question I see is what distribution is shown right now? Good question. This is no distribution. This is simply us working out, this, this is what, something we created based on the problem. So not, not every um, probability distribution will be from the set of probability distributions you'll see in, the, uh, in your textbooks. This is completely derived from the problem at hand, which was based on the percentage of things that you'd expect to fail at uh, two years time, uh, at the one period of two years. So if we go back, the the um, we only took we only only typically use a a uh, an off the shelf probability distribution if we're trying to fit a model. Now we use the Weibull distribution to model uh, the re uh, reliability of our, our wireless modem router, but this. This histogram on the left-hand side comes from the precise interpretation of the problem at hand. It is the probability of us having our wireless modem router fail at two years into its life. So there is no model we're fitting to the data because we have the data, we have, we've already created a model per se. We're now using that model to create sample data points to help us answer our question. And because we're doing that, we are creating our own probability distribution, but the real one, the right one. So this doesn't, although it has a bell curve, it doesn't mean it's a normal distribution or you see a lot of bell, bell shapes in, in, uh, in nature, but this probability distribution has got no name. It, we've generated completely from our understanding of the process. And because we use sampling, Markov chain Monte Carlo sampling, we create the perfect probability distribution for our question. But that's a really good question. We're not trying to fit anything to it. We are creating our own with that sampling approach. Um, let's just see. I can see a couple of questions. Uh, 
before they go. So the next question is, in practice, how do you modify the approach to include censoring using only failure data that will that will show negative bias? Really good, really good question. Now, with censoring, you can still use the Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation approach. It's just that when I do when I incorporate censoring and I use uh, this slice sampler algorithm here, I need to change the line at the bottom to include uh, not only observed data points but censored data points, which is straightforward to do. It might be a conversation we should have after today's webinar, but it really is quite easy to do. And once you include it here in this line of code. All that sensor data point will then influence the samples you get uh, as an out output of that, pro that approach. So you don't have to modify too much. And I see that Mark, you, you don't have MATLAB, you use, you use R. I know R has very similar coding uh, language, it has very similar, similar um, uh, functions. So you should be able to do this in a heartbeat as well. More, more than happy to talk offline to uh, get you there as well. Now, how little data could you use for the base data set? David, Hold that question. It's a really, really good question. We're going to address it later on. Uh, so, Mark, not everything is named. This is what the data supports. Um, do you mind just uh, refining those questions or comments so I can uh, understand the context you're talking about? And uh, MCMC is nearly magic. In a way, it can be. Uh, so, is the expected profit just the mean? Yes. The expected profit is the mean. So, the mean is a really useful uh, metric in terms of us being able to say that, hey, if we were to sell a billion units, then our profit we'd expect would be 32 cents. It's our expected return on investment. It is what would happen if you were able to run that experiment for an infinite number of times. Obviously, we can't do that, so we have to uh, take into consideration the uncertainties each, each side as well. All right, so this is, so what we've covered so far, it's it's really simple. Hopefully you think it's simple. It's uh, It can incorporate a ton of different things as well, including sensor data points. That's really easy to do. Um, and once you do it, you don't use, you don't have to make assumptions. You get the uh, completely synthesized probability distribution to help you answer your question. And that's one of the reasons that uh, commercial software often sucks because of that. And because it's so simple, uh, this is something I did uh, really quickly last night, um, just to show you how easy it is to look at um, uh, this problem from a different perspective. So what I did is I created a little video which shows our histogram, or our, which represents our PDF of warranty failure probability for different warranty periods. So you're about to see a little video which shows the percent, uh, the expected warranty uh, failure failure rate for a warranty period starting from zero and going all the way up to four years. So if our warranty period is zero, we expect nothing to fail. So the, the failure probability is zero. If our warranty period is one day, sure, there's a chance of failure, but it's gonna be very, very small. And this is all based on our data. So have a look at what you're about to see. The, 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 there's a scale at the top, which shows, uh, which has a little triangle moving from left to right, which shows you the warranty period that the histogram below is based on. And it's really simple. You can see that as the warranty period increases, our probability of failure in that warranty period also increases. And this is using essentially the same code that we just went through, it's just that it's evaluating, uh, evaluating it at uh, different points, at different warranty period values. So you can really fine tune what the, the analysis is all about. So if your boss is saying, hey, 
32 cents profit, that's not enough. We need to bring back our warranty period uh, so that uh, we have a higher profit margin. And you go, okay, well, let's have a look at this video here and let's find uh, the histogram or the, the PDF of, of failure probability, which makes sense from a business perspective. So you can, you can see how I've done this really quickly for our warranty period. So simple to do the same thing for expected profit as well. Now, this is actually, like I said, I want to reinforce how simple this is. And you're all smart people. So if, you, if you're able to invest a little bit of time into understanding things like MATLAB or R, you can create your own data analysis approaches where you don't rely on commercial software. Now, beyond the fact that commercial software just focuses on giving you reliability metric outputs, there are a ton of assumptions that they make as well, which we don't talk about a lot in the industry. So for example, if I put these data points into commercial software, it will give me this 90% confidence region if I say, please give me a 90% confidence, confidence region. Now, to answer those questions like, how much profit will I make? What's the risk profile? This 90% confidence region uh, interval doesn't give you that beautiful PDF curve of warranty, uh, sorry, warranty failure probability at two years, for example. You might, and I've seen this done before, you might have people who try and do a bunch of different confidence intervals to try and sort of create that uh, uh, probability distribution at two years, but that is archaic, it's time consuming and highly inaccurate as well. If we go back to what commercial software is doing, it is making a ton of assumptions. And if we use Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation, we'll realize that these dotted lines on our, uh, on our confidence area are the true confidence lines. So because there is a ton of assumptions which are based on the Fisher information matrix and lots of other things, um, we, we see that there is a difference between the true confidence region and the actual confidence region. But it gets much worse the less information you have. So if we only have a few data points, in this case, we have four data points. This is the confidence area, confidence, confidence region or 90% uh, confidence region that software will give you. Now, who was it who asked about the number of data points? Uh, David, you asked about how many data points we have, uh, we need to have, sorry. Well, there is no answer for that because the fewer data points you have, uh, the more uncertainty you will have in your failure probability at two years, and that will be borne out in your uh, in that histogram we looked at. So we'll come back to that in a tick. But just before we before we uh, leave this conversation, look at what the soft, uh, commercial software is doing with regards to this confidence region. You'll see that the confidence region is in some case going down as we move from left to right, and that's statistically impossible. You can't do that. You can't have an estimate on the CDF. Uh, so, uh, decreasing with respect to time. That's saying that we expect uh, things to be more likely to work as they get older. That just can't happen. But this is what commercial software does with all the assumptions they make. And the actual confidence bounds on our four data points here are shown here in dotted lines. So uh, coming back to your question, Dave, David, uh, it doesn't really matter how many data points you have because if you use Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation, the uncertainty that you introduce by having such little information will be borne out in that histogram we just looked at. So let's go back a few slides. Maybe in my next iteration of this webinar, I might include an example of that. Um, if you only have four data points and a lot, lot, less uncer lot more uncertainty, sorry, 
this curve which we get from Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation might be a lot lower and a lot fatter. So the uncertainty in the warranty period that we get from having such little information will make this curve a lot less certain. It'd be a lot lower and a lot fatter. And that's still information that can inform the decision maker. Because if your wireless modem router has field data or test data, but only has four data points, and the reason it only has four data points is because it's so reliable that barely any of them, any of them fail during tests, that's a great thing. So you'll see a lower fat PDF but to the right in where we're making tons more profit. So having fewer data points is not necessarily a bad thing. You have less information, but you often have fewer data points when your thing is more reliable. And using the Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation approach, will uh, it will have that uncertainty incorporated into your risk or decision risk profile. So hopefully that answers the question. Um, seeing a couple more questions coming through. For the lower number of data points, are you using RRX or MLE? No, so maximum likelihood estimation in particular, uh, that is that is the one that most software packages use. So I'm just using an example of how they uh, use maximum likelihood estimation to get the line of best fit. And then they use the Fisher information matrix to create that confidence region. So MLE in particular is focused on the line of best fit. And they use that the approximation of the Fisher information matrix. If you want to talk about that separately, feel free to email me to create the confidence bounds. Um, so rank regression over X is another approach that we can use, but realistically, um, when we're talking about rank regression, we're not looking at the underlying likelihood of separate models, which is why MCMC wins every single time. Okay, so if you use MCMC, you never have to worry about these assumptions. You never have to worry about having not enough data uh, to get a, an answer that you can, sorry, get an output to, that you can use to inform a decision. If you have little data, that will be incorporated into your decision risk profile. If there's still too much uncertainty in the decision risk profile for your decision maker, that's when you might need to go and get more data. But again, things that are more reliable tend to have less data because they don't fail as much, which is great. So less data is not necessarily the, the, uh, the enemy to decision making. If you have only a little bit of data and the results aren't conclusive from the decision maker's perspective, then you do have a problem. Then you go and do more, do, do more research or more testing, which means it comes back to the most important three things for reliability data analysis. Decisions, decisions, decisions. They are the three most important things for data analysis. What is it that matters to your decision maker? In this case, we examined a decision where the decision maker was motivated by profit, and that's okay. So as soon as we knew he or she was motivated by profit, we worked out how reliability influenced profit. It is simply the failure probability multiplied by the warranty cost per unit. That's how much we lose. How much we gain is a net profit per unit. So the net profit per unit minus the net cost per unit gives us the answer our decision or help, gives us the information or the metric that our decision maker will use to inform his or her decision to press, press play or not. So find out what metric matters to your decision maker before, we move, before you move on. And don't use commercial software blindly. Commercial software is really good at solving 95% of your uh, surface level inquiries when it comes to reliability engineering, but there are problems. 
firstly, they make a ton of assumptions. So their confidence bounds aren't really confidence bounds. That becomes less of an issue if you have more data, obviously. But if you have less data, then the confidence bounds provided by your, your, your uh, commercial software are typically quite off. And they tend to overstate the failure probability as well. That's the first issue. The second issue with commercial software is it spits out answers in terms of reliability performance. You're not interested in reliability performance for reliability performance sake. You're interested in how much that reliability performance affects the value of your organization. You need to understand how much money that reliability characteristic will make or cost you. So the output of commercial software is still an input at best to a business decision. So if, you, you, if you're able to dissect the problem with a little bit more detail and use, uh, you do have to nerd it up a little bit, but if you can teach yourself how to do Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation, uh, you can really quickly get some very useful decision risk profiles, which allows a decision maker to make a completely informed decision. Now those, uh, those lines of code I showed uh, in the lesson, obviously they're in the notes, but there are a couple of things you need to be aware of if you're going to use that use those uh, equations uh, more frequently moving forward. There are some tricks, there are some things you need to consider. Um, certainly outside the scope of today's webinar, if you want another webinar on how to do Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation for these simple reliability problems in a more detailed, more robust way, please let us know. You can easily do that in one of our uh, webinar series. But hopefully you can see that if we do that, we get a really useful uh, decision risk profile, which helps us understand what the decision maker needs to have uh, moving forward. See a couple of uh, answers. Yes, another detailed session will be awesome. All right, might have to get that locked away, Fred, on how to use Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. But you guys need to work with me here because now you know why Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation is, is awesome. But if I have a webinar titled Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation, that's going to throw a lot of people away. So let's make sure that uh, you, do, you help us out in terms of spreading the word with respect to uh, uh, why Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation is not something to be scared of. It's not something that uh, slows things down. Slows things down. It is an awesome tool that really helps you as a reliability engineer become valuable to a decision maker. And when you become valuable to a decision maker, they start to listen to you which helps everyone, especially yourself. Okay, so uh, I see a couple of questions. How can we reach you? My contact details are at the, uh, on ascenderreliability.com. Uh, feel free to reach, reach out there. Um, uh, my buyer's there as well. Uh, please reach out if uh, you can see a ton of responses for our MCMC webinars. That's cool. I think we're gonna have to lock that one in, Fred. That's a, that's a done deal. Um, but if you want to reach out to me, my contact details, my email address is on the uh, senderreliability.com website. So I'll look forward to uh, future correspondence moving forward. And that's it. Are there any questions uh, beyond those that have already been asked on what this is all about? I do need to stress, I picked one decision, or one example decision, I should say. So uh, it's really easy to change what we did to suit any other decision but I just I'll pick one example today. Um, it's not the only decision we can use this approach for, obviously. But just be aware that uh, you need to uh, have the analysis suit your decision, and not the other way around. Any more questions?
Okay. With the increase in number of failures, how sensitive is MCMC? In terms of how sensitive it is, that's I don't think that's actually uh, th there's no premise for that question. Um, and just bear with me because if you have uh, less information, what Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation does is incorporate the uncertainty in the samples. So essentially, those hundreds of lines of Weibull distributions you saw on the screen, if you have less information, I'll pull that pull that slide up. Uh, not that one. So here is uh, those hundred, hundreds of lines that our Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation uh, spat out at us. Uh, if you have fewer data points, those lines will be less dense. They'll be more spread out to incorporate the lack of information you have. And when they're spread out, then that will then influence uh, the warranty failure probability. Those, those estimates will also be spread out which then propagates through your entire uh, decision-making process and that bell, uh, the curve we got at the end will be lower and fatter to reflect the fact that we don't have as much information. So MCMC is not sensitive per se because it accurately represents how much information you have. Um, it, will, it is what it is. There is no, uh, there's no information that it re uh, requires. There's no information threshold below which it won't work it will just incorporate the uncertainty in the outputs, which is one of the beauties of MCMC. There's no assumptions, there's no inaccuracies. It will capture the lack of information. Does that answer your question? I suppose in the next iteration of this, um, of this webinar, I might actually compare uh, this set of viable distribution lines with another set generated from uh, data set with less data points, so you can actually see the effect it has that fewer data points has on the on these lines being more spread out, and how that goes all the way through to the end. So if we have fewer data points, we'll have less information. So that hundred samples of reliability at two years or failure probability at two years will be more spread out, which then goes through and informs the decision market. Any more questions? Just wait one more minute to allow the chance that someone's typing in a, a uh, question slash novel so it can come through. But if not, we'll, uh, we'll be calling it quits fairly soon. So I can see a question from Maximilian. The $32.32 is basically the expected monetary value. What was the mean of the model's output? That was the mean. So $0.32 cents was the expected value, which is the mean. So the mean is what you will see if you run the same experiment an infinite number of times. So that's how we get the expected, expected value. In fact, the mean is often called the expectation or the expected value in terms of probability and statistics. Cool, thank you, David. Another four minutes on the clock if people need to sit back and think of a probing question which might stump me, hopefully. 
Oh, thank you, Evan. Much appreciated. Uh, can you place confidence on the mean? Yes, you can, David. Absolutely, you can. Um, in this case, we're not so interested in confidence on the mean uh, because uh, we don't use that mean value to inform a decision per se because we're actually interested in the variation around the mean as well when it comes to profit. So that would be the expected value, but the, the sort of distribution around it means that, hey, when you run your experiment, boss, there's a 40% chance you won't make a profit. But if you were to run this production process in a hundred different, uh, thousand different companies and you're all producing wireless modem routers for the same process, you know, as a rule, you run that experiment enough times, all the different divisions manufacturing the same, a wireless modem router would expect to, on average, make 32 cents per unit. So it's, the mean is an important part of the decision, but in terms of confidence on the mean, we're more interested in the confidence on the profit itself. A lot of organisations like having a confidence on the mean because uh, they're looking at it from the perspective of testing. And they use that mean to inform availability and logistics and sparing models. That's not what we're doing here. Um, we're doing a much simpler, much more pure relationship between the information we have and the uh, and the uh, metric that matters. Uh, thank you for your feedback, team. Okay, so request for the uh, following session, if possible, with R. All right, I'll see what I can do. I like I've been uh, I've been brought up on MATLAB, and I've used R. My 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 go-to thing is MATLAB, but hey, it's all about you guys. So we'll see what we can do uh, for our webinar moving forward. I do know that uh, MATLAB is a little bit better at creating those nice little videos. So even if I do use R, I might revert to MATLAB to actually illustrate some of the more, you know, some of the cooler functions as well. But uh, I take your point. No, it's not. It's, uh, R is a very, very powerful programming language and um, it's, it's free, which is, makes it really cool. All right, one more minute. So if I do that MCMC, MCMC webinar, you got to help me. You got to help me about promote that one because unless you've seen a webinar like this, there's a chance that people won't appreciate what MCMC is all about. Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. I'll, I'll make it as simple as possible. Uh, if it's not simple, it's not useful. So we'll, we'll, we'll use a similar decision hopefully and try and really get to the nut, get to the heart of how we use Markov chain Monte Carlo simulation. But hey, what it's worth, give it, give us a hand to try and. Uh, generate some buzz on what could be a pretty boring title to a webinar um, moving forward. So we're coming up to uh, to the hour. So I think we might wrap things up there. Again, hey team, thank you very much for your time. It's great reaching out to you guys and, and having this conversation. It's always good to brush up on our skills at this end. You can contact me through uh, through uh, ascendoreliability.com. If you can't find my email address for whatever reason, the comments section of this webinar is something that uh, will automatically be forwarded to me as well. So you can uh, fairly easily, hopefully, find out, find me, uh, get me, uh, get my contact details, or otherwise reach out. But beyond that, hey, enjoy the rest of your day, and looking forward to talking again soon.